back to the History for Atheists podcast. I'm Tim O'Neill, and I'm the author of the History for Atheists blog, where I analyse some of the things many of my fellow atheists get wrong about history in general, and the history of religion in particular. If you're an atheist, or just someone interested in common misconceptions and myths about history, this podcast is for you. Welcome back to History for Atheists. My guest today is Professor Ken Dark. Ken is Professor of Archaeology and History at the University of Reading and a Fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of London, the Royal Historical Society and the Royal Anthropological Institute, as well as a member of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the only person elected to all of those learned societies. His archaeological work is focused on late antiquity and the Byzantine era, but as he and I will discuss, this led him to undertake excavations in Nazareth, which will be the focus of our discussion today. His excavations there are the focus of his new book, Archaeology of Jesus Nazareth, which draws on several papers he's published based on his digs in that area. In today's conversation, we talk about the evidence regarding the town of Nazareth in Jesus' time, and of course, eventually get to the crackpot theory that there was no such town, at least not in the time of Jesus of Nazareth. This theory is so stupid that even most Jesus mythicists reject it, but it still has currency among far too many non-believers. Ken Dark will help us to understand why it's complete nonsense. So... Ken Dark, or sorry, Dr. Ken Dark, or do I call you Ken Dark these days? Professor, it is too, yeah. (laughs) Professor Ken Dark, but I think I'll just call you Ken. Um, I'd rather be called Ken. (laughs) Thank you. Ken, welcome to History for Atheists, and uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of the middle of your day uh, to to come on the show. Um, This is a video, but, but we do a podcast version of it as well. Uh, but obviously what we want to talk about today is the archaeology of Nazareth. And um, I'd be interested before we get into that to maybe talk a little bit about your background as an archaeologist. I've just been uh, reading your new book uh, on the archaeology of Nazareth, so the archaeology of Jesus' Nazareth, which arrived just a few days ago for me, hot off the presses. And in your first chapter, you call yourself an accidental biblical archaeologist. What do you mean? That was really a joke for, for the chapter title, but um, what I meant was that I'm a secular archaeologist. I'm a, a, a specialist on the first millennium AD. Um, we call it AD, BC in British uh, Roman period archaeology. That's not as um, René Sam um, said in his Nazareth Gate book some kind of ideological statement in itself. People would look at me askance if I talked about the first millennium CE um, in Roman archaeology in Britain. Um, so um, first millennium AD specialist, um, really I've worked on Secular topics. Most for most of my career, I wrote my PhD on the um, collapse of the Roman Empire, um, talking about uh, the archaeology and history of the Roman collapse and what it might tell us about theories of state collapse. So um, after that, 
I've worked on various uh, themes and topics in Roman and immediately post-Roman archaeology, both in Western Europe, especially Britain, and um, in the Mediterranean, especially the Eastern Mediterranean. So before I came to Nazareth, I was working for a long time on the archaeology of Istanbul, on the Byzantine capital city of Constantinople. And so um, that was my immediate background before coming to Nazareth. And um, I'd also uh, worked for many years on Eastern Mediterranean, Roman and Byzantine pottery and um, written the first book on the book on Byzantine pottery overall since 1930, which was <laughs> then for 70 years in um, in 2000 or sure. thereabouts. So, 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 so I, I came to it from that. So when you say that you're, you're an accidental biblical archaeologist, what you're saying is that you're not someone who's, who's specialised in let's look at what the archaeology can tell us about the, the Bible, and you're certainly not one of these let's prove the Bible by, by doing archaeology people. <laughs> and people. People sometimes say, especially people who want to um, make it sound as if everything I write or everything any archaeologist writes on the archaeology of Nazareth or the archaeology of the first century in Galilee um, is a kind of ideological um, um, religious statement. Um, yeah. They occasionally say, were, were you coming to Nazareth as a sort of um, mission or were you coming to Nazareth um, as a quest for Jesus, no, I was coming to Nazareth specifically to um, understand the emergence of a late Roman and Byzantine pilgrimage centre in its Roman period landscape. Um, so nothing to do with early first century Nazareth at all. And in the course of doing that, we kept finding things that were first century and did relate to the um, what that book title calls Jesus is Nazareth. Good. And so um, that obviously, being a proper professional archaeologist, you can't just ignore the evidence. <laughs> and so if you've got a lot of evidence, that requires um, explanation, it requires reporting, but it also requires putting it in a broader context. And um, given that the broader context in Nazareth includes early Christianity, it includes the Gospels, um, then I obviously had to had to take account of that while still maintaining the same research project. I mean in terms of my overall research question, it was fascinating what we found in the um, later Roman and early Byzantine phases in the countryside outside Nazareth, where distinctions that have been maintained apparently for centuries between the two sides of the valley, between Nazareth and Sepphoris, break down. Yeah, in, okay. in, in the in this late period, and I was really interested in that part of the book 
That, that, that was quite interesting because you, you talk about and you give a map that, that shows the, the fines. So w- what we're talking about is we've got a valley, Nazareth is on one side, Sephoris, which was a, uh, was a really sort of a pagan uh, Roman city, uh, or, or larger, larger, larger. It was town. a larger city. We think with a, a predominantly Jewish population, but a much sure. more multicultural population. Yeah, but there there's were, a divide down the middle of the valley where, where, where what you discovered was that on one side, the Nazareth side, it's purely Jewish, and yeah. on the Sephoris side, it's a mix. It's, it's yeah, pagan, pagan, Roman, Jewish. And so there seems to have been a kind of a, it's almost as though Nazareth is in, I think you, you call it kind of like a, a Jewish island yeah, in, the middle, exactly. in the middle of this part of Galilee, which, which is fascinating. Exactly. It's the, um, in terms of Sepphoris and its culture, we see not something exceptional. We see something typical. As, yeah. a, as a Romanist with one hat on, I recognise it absolutely as typical of Eastern Roman provincial cities in their multicultural and um, what we used to call Romanized aspects. We tend not to say Romanized anymore. But anyway, I'll say it now. Um, but then when we get to the Nazareth side of the village, uh, the, the valley, sorry, um, we have a much smaller, we think, settlement. Um, not certainly not a major Roman town, yep. and that settlement is associated with a purely Jewish material culture, and so it looks as if there's um, a division across the valley. And in fact, you can trace it um, in the countryside, in the material culture of the countryside sites in the valley, to almost exactly halfway down the middle of the valley, where you get the normal Roman provincial culture coming up from Sepphoris and the um, more purely Jewish stuff coming out of um, Nazareth, as it were. And And that breaks down, you say, later on. It breaks down in the late Roman period, or at least by the Byzantine period. But the interesting thing before we get to that is this, kind of cultural division is not normal in the archaeology of the Roman Empire. This probably is the place in the whole Roman Empire where we can see as blatant, as direct, as abrupt a division between what used to be called Romanized provincial culture and indigenous provincial culture. And that's of empire-wide significance. I mean, you know, regardless of whatever religious or atheist um, uh, significance the archaeology of Nazareth has, that's a really serious discovery for Roman provincial archaeology, where resistance and imperialism are major themes and have been, to be fair, for a long, long time, way before they became fashionable in other walks of life. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so just before we talk a little bit more about, about specifically the digs that you've done in, in Nazareth, can you maybe give us a quick overview of the archaeology of Nazareth generally and with a particular focus on the first century because we're going to get to the whole 
claim that there was no Nazareth in the early first century yeah. at the moment. So, so my understanding is that there are kind of three main sites where we where there have been, or maybe four, where there have been discoveries of of uh, early Roman, so what we would call early Roman or late Hellenic yeah. uh, finds. So these are these are finds from the period just before and around about the same time as Jesus is said to have lived. Yeah, early, the early, early Roman period. Early Roman, so okay. when, yeah. when the Roman period starts in the Nazareth area just before the turn of the era um, and um, then goes on and, until it merges with the Byzantine period, um, sure. which I would start at the early 5th century. Some people are, uh, would would differ bit a bit earlier, bit later, but let's say that. So in terms of the archaeology of early Roman Nazareth or early Roman period Nazareth, because there's nothing very, very um, Roman, Roman as yeah. we've just been talking about, about <laughs> early first century Nazareth and its immediate hinterland, um, the archaeology of, um, of that settlement is um, really known through very few actual excavations. There are some chance finds, um, especially of rock-cut tombs, which were um, found mostly in the 19th century. There were a few um, in the 20th. I don't think we have a completely new one on a site which was not already excavated in the 19th or 20th centuries, in this century. But anyway, rock-cut tombs, um, they have almost universally been poorly excavated or really not excavated at all, um, but recorded, often in sketches, seldom in very much detail, um, and they form a roughly a ring around the centre of modern Nazareth. And um, some people in the past, especially biblical scholars, have um, wanted to say that that defines the Nazareth that Jesus would have lived in in the early first century. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's a problem with that in that although some of those tombs are first century, and some of them are even of earlier um, form than the first century. Um, the whole phenomenon of um, using these rock cut tombs seems to have come in to the lower Galilee, the place, the region where um, Nazareth was, around about the mid-first century. So in other words, you can't use this ring of tombs to define the limits of Jesus' Nazareth. Um, They weren't there then. They were were a later thing. Now, it's very interesting they were later um, because that tomb type and the stuff that was found within them, and some of that we know about, um, indicate um, together that we have the tombs of pretty wealthy people. Um, 
probably wealthier than one would expect in a normal um, Galilean agricultural village. So, so that's quite interesting. Hmm. Um, then we have three excavated sites. Um, one site is away from the centre of um, modern Nazareth, a little bit away, um, and that is variously called in publications Nazareth Village Farm or Nazareth Village. And there is a, um, a very interesting um, modern reconstruction of a, a few buildings that um, are like those that would have existed in first century Nazareth and recreations of various crafts, working and agricultural techniques that you can see at that site today, which has developed as a sort of tourist public education um, uh, attraction, if you like. Mm -hmm. Now that, when it was excavated, was a site where there were agricultural terraces. There was a, quite a lot of evidence for um, agricultural activity in the in the first um, century AD, um, and including what might be evidence from the early first century AD. So that tells us a lot about how people were farming in the Nazareth area. And funnily enough, at a rescue site, a site um, excavated um, ahead of construction work, ahead of destruction of its archaeology, um, the Israel Antiquities Authority found very similar evidence backing up the Nazareth village or village farm excavation. So these are, these are sites that would have probably been outside any settlement area, but, but are um, informative about the sort of activities that were probably associated with that settlement. Uh, just, just before we move on from that, that particular site, because I've read the archaeological report on that site. Um, so you've got, you've got finds there which are mainly sort of pottery and pottery fragments, and they, they span from, if I remember correctly, the, the Hellenic through the early Romans, so through that, that early first century, late Roman and Byzantine. Have I got that right? Um, I'm not sure as Byzantine, Maybe not. But, but there is late Hellenistic through to the end of the Roman period. Um, gotcha. I'd have to, look, have to go back and look at the Byzantine. Well, I, I, um, I didn't get a chance today to, to, to really look at that report, but there's definitely early Roman because I remember counting, no, specifically uh, counting about 20 specific finds that, that, oh, uh, yes, there that, that, that identify. There's, there's no doubt about the okay. site of that period. Okay. Um, that's and, good. So, so that's, um, I mean, some, there's, there's been some debate about it, but not serious debate, not from anybody who is really qualified to judge. We'll, we'll, come, back, <laughs> anyway. we'll come back to the debate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, so that's that side. Anyway, yeah. um, elsewhere, the um, excavated sites, um, there were, um, really, a actually, 
You could say there were three of them. I I don't know what figure I just gave, but you could say there were three of them. There's the Church of the Annunciation site, which was excavated when the modern cathedral-like Church of the Annunciation um, was built in the 1960s and the very early 70s. And that was also a rescue excavation, and that was um, mostly... Uh, directed by a, um, a Franciscan monk and priest um, called Bellamino Bagatti, who excavated it um, and published it in um, great detail, but was using not the methods of the 1960s and 70s, but rather archaeological methods which we would associate um, certainly in Northwest Europe um, with the period before World War II. Right. And, um, he gives enough to reinterpret or to check what he's done, but um, doesn't really um, publish in, in, in a modern way, but also didn't excavate it in a modern way mm-hmm. and thus the the essential um sequence um of structures and events on that site can be reconstructed can be um in part confirmed in part revised in in reanalysis and i've done that um but a lot of what he um, he did could have been done in a way which would, even in the 60s and 70s, have given us huge amounts more evidence um, to work with. So right. it's kind of um, a glass half empty, glass half full type um, scenario. Bit of a missed opportunity, perhaps. Yeah. But, yeah. but you look at it one way, it it was good. He recorded the information because it was going to be destroyed. If he hadn't been there, it wouldn't have been recorded. Um, On on the other hand, um, it it was a bit of a missed opportunity. Anyway, there's that sign. Um, And that's got first century, early first century um, structural evidence. Um, How much? Of it is, in any sense, domestic. We don't is is very difficult to to ascertain. Um, right. It's got storage facilities. It's got agricultural facilities. It's got um, water systems. It's obviously part of a settlement, but whether there are any houses there, uh, it's really hard to tell. Um, what has happened, which causes this problem, apart from the quality of the excavation, is that constant building on the site, the same site, has um, cut away earlier archaeological layers and features. And so um, if there had been um, domestic buildings covering the site um, and these Underground, mostly, um, storage spaces had been sort of ancillary to those. We wouldn't know because the 
ground level um, buildings would have been cut away anyway. So um, it's a partial picture of a very big bit of what is obviously an early Roman period settlement. And just before you go on, Ken, can I just make uh, maybe just to make a point? Um, because you, you know, I've read I've read a lot of the literature on this, but just for the listeners and viewers, it's not like at Nazareth is this open field that archaeologists can just go and dig anywhere. Oh, yeah. There's a bloody great modern city there, right? So this is why you're talking. We're talking about these individual sites, so we're getting kind of snapshots yeah. of, of what's there, simply because there's a limited number of places where you can actually dig because yeah. it's not like you can go and knock on someone's door and say, excuse me, but we'd like to excavate, you know, under yeah. your house, please. Exactly. Difficult. So I've got that right, haven't I? This, this yeah, is yeah, it's, a, it's not only a city, but it's yeah. the centre of a city of 60,000 plus. Right. So it's a big city. So, so it's, a, it's right in the heart yeah. of a modern city and, yeah. you know, concrete, tarmac, um, brick buildings everywhere um, and very few places you could excavate without knocking something down. Gotcha. And that, yeah. Then, therefore, what's been found, in fact, what's been found on all of those three sites I mentioned, I've come to just one of them, yeah. um, What's been found in the city centre, I mean, not Nazareth village. Um, What's been found on all all of those sites has come up as a result of construction activity. Gotcha. At the Church of the Annunciation, building the Church of the Annunciation in its modern form, um, and at the other two sites, other construction. Anyway, just to finish off on the Church of the Annunciation, (laughs) um, when you reanalyse it, Um, looking at the whole sequence in a 21st century archaeological way, you quickly realise that these rock-cut features um, of early Roman period date um, were not all in use together, and um, a sequence of them can be built up partly in fact, mostly, by which one cuts through which other one. Um, Obviously, you can't cut through a rock-cut hollow if it's not there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, you can build up a sequence. And the key element of this, and what wasn't noticed before my work, I have no idea why, um, is that some of the things that cut through the earliest phases of early Roman period um, features on that site um, are what we call refuge um, uh, refuge um, tunnels, refuge um, places dating from almost certainly from the um, first Jewish revolt. And right. so as you know, Tim, um, um, probably most of the people watching this know that dates them um, in um, 70 or earlier in uh, in the um, well into the first um, century. And if there's a sequence before um, those datable features, obviously that sequence has to date from 
earlier. Um, much earlier. Yeah. Um, because it, it, it involves features which were used, then cut away by other features, then those features used, then they were cut away by these refuge places. Gotcha. Uh, so, but but the, the dating of of those those sites, that site generally, to to at least part of it, to the early Roman periods, the period that we're kind of focusing on this conversation, is that from fines, or is that from other elements? There's 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 two elements. There's what I have just said yeah. that. The stratigraphical sequence, its sequence of intercutting in this okay. case, yep. involves one datable element, but there are also finds. I mean, I've heard it said that there aren't um, early first century finds from um, the Church of the Annunciation site. That would not be my um, dating of um, a lot of the pottery and um other objects on the site, um, sure. and I think I think it wouldn't be any any um, professional Roman archaeologist familiar with Galilee um, stating as well. Um, it's it's pretty clear cut. There's pottery, there are amphora, there's um, ceramic lamps. Uh, more hazily dated, but still possibly of that period, there are limestone vessels, which are um, typical of uh, a generally early Roman period um, context in the Galilee, but also may have been produced slightly later than that. But here, probably um, in an early Roman period association. So... So it's pretty um, uncontroversially. That, oh, that, um, absolutely. Okay. I mean, um, okay. something that strikes me um, as very odd about um, some of the discussion of the archaeology of Nazareth by people who haven't been involved in actually doing it okay. is that um, they will um, say that there's no first century pottery, that there's no first century evidence. Um, but they haven't been there extensively. They certainly haven't handled thousands of the, the thousands of sherds of pottery available from Nazareth, um, or even probably seen most of them. They haven't um, the comparative um, knowledge from um, apparently from similar Galilean sites where such things are well dated and to to comment on that. And, you know, uh, it's very hard to think that the interpretation that Nazareth wasn't there in the first century as a domestic settlement is credible if you're standing there with plainly first century domestic pottery in your hand from, from yeah, Nazareth, we, which you have just come out of the ground in Nazareth. We will um, have to come back to the skeptics in a moment. But, but before we uh, – is yeah. that pretty much a good summary of the Church of the Annunciation site? No, that, that, that will do for the Church of the Annunciation. Sure. Um, so going on, to, going on to other sites, there's um, – 
a much smaller but very much better excavated site um, dug in the early 21st century by the Israel Antiquities Authority um, at a site which is um, most conveniently called the IMC site or International Marion Center site, which was um, excavated ahead of the construction of a, um, uh, uh, I think, ecumenical but Christian um, center for um, the um, study and um, um, knowledge of St. Mary, of the Virgin Mary, um, which is standing today in Nazareth, really more or less next to the Church of the Annunciation site across the street. Okay. And that um, that complex is a substantial complex, though nowhere near as big as the Church of the Annunciation complex. Um, it's... Uh, it's very important to the archaeology of Nazareth because, as you can see displayed on the site today, there are the remains of what are obviously um, domestic buildings um, of an early Roman period date. Again, you, anybody familiar with the evidence on the ground, anybody familiar with the comparative evidence would realise that these were early Roman period domestic buildings. And it's been well excavated by a very talented Israeli archaeologist. Um, actually, as a, as a Brit, I will say, trained in the University of London, so that's a good thing. And, um, and she um, published it in quite a lot of detail and certainly in all the academic detail you need to check what she says um, and she's right it's um, a Roman period domestic structure which then goes on to be used in other ways of the site goes on to be used in other ways in later centuries but what we're talking about today is that it's a house, as it were, from early first century and later first century, actually, in that case, Nazareth. And okay. so and that, that was the house that was, that was excavated by, is that by Alexandra? Yeah, Alexandra. Yeah, and, and, Alexandra. And, yeah. yeah, yeah that, that's, that's the one I'm talking about. Okay. But for the Israel Antiquities Authority, cool. it's, yep. it's their excavation. And they have a very, very efficient um, rescue archaeology program for Israel and um, in employing some extremely good archaeologists of which um, Alexandra is one um, and um, that is a that is a major discovery sure. and um, but it wasn't the first house to be found in the ancient settlement of Nazareth across the street from that about 100 metres from the Church of the Annunciation um, is the Sisters of Nazareth site, on which I've worked, um, where the excavation was done in the late 19th century and early 20th century, before the formation of the State of Israel, but um, after the um, 
Order of Nuns, the French-speaking Order of the Sisters of Nazareth. There are, I should say, because I saw somebody confuse this the other day, and I was absolutely outraged. There, <laughs> they, they, there are two orders of nuns called the Sisters of Nazareth. The French-speaking order, who are present in um, Israel and um, Lebanon, I believe, um, ha having a house, having a monastic complex in Nazareth. That order is utterly beloved of most people by but utterly beloved by most people in Nazareth. Yeah. Um, and um, that's because um, they not only do their religious activities, but they also run a school. They do a lot of charity work among the poor, including the very poor in Nazareth, and um, re absolutely regardless of um, belief or whatever or culture, they are there for the, the poor people of Nazareth. Talk to a Nazareth taxi driver. They will tell you, um, who, whatever their background, they will tell you how wonderful the Sisters of Nazareth are. And it's, it's, un, it's under their... Yeah, it's their, under, their, under their convent. I just yeah. ought to say, unfortunately, the other Sisters of Nazareth are like the, the opposite. The, they're the English-speaking, I think, I may be wrong, American-based order of the Sisters of Nazareth. Um, and they are one of these monastic orders which have been involved in an abuse scandal. Oh. Um, that is not the same lot, lot as the ones in Nazareth. And, um, you know, um, well, uh, and, uh, a colleague of mine who I shall, as, I, as he is nameless, I shall um, tell you, is himself an atheist, um, um, said... Uh, after working for several years with me at the Sisters of Nazareth convent, if all Christians were like this, I'd be a Christian. Um, anyway, um, so so I have an utter admiration for our nuns, mm -hmm. as it were, um, but um, they're separate from the other order. Gotcha. A, a, a different matter. Anyway. We're not here to talk about nuns. <laughs> but, um, but the nuns in Nazareth, in the Sisters of Nazareth convent, have under their convent the most remarkable um, underground shelter um, purpose-built to contain an array of archaeological features, many of them very well-preserved, um, that were found when the convent itself was constructed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, amazingly, the convent superior, the Sisters of Nazareth don't call the boss of the convent, um, the mother superior, they just call her the superior. Yeah. Um, they are a very informal group of nuns um, in my experience they wear um they don't wear habits they wear normal 
European clothes, um, uh, sort of plain clothes nuns. Um, so they they're they're superior um, at the time of the of the excavation uh, of the discovery. Mounted her own excavation, her own rescue excavation. This was a woman called Marie Giraud, Mayor Marie Giraud. Um, okay. These days, these days, the um, sisters of Nazareth um, don't call the superior mother or Mayor; um, they just call her sister. But anyway, then they did. Mayor Marie Giraud um, organised initiated, directed, and recorded the rescue excavation of the remains that were found um, when the convent was constructed. She did so according to the best standards of um, late 19th century archaeology. She made meticulous, detailed, surveyed records. I mean... They're not as good as modern archaeological records, but they're a heck of a lot better than most 19th century archaeological records. And in doing so and organising the nuns to be her workforce, along with workmen, as was typical of the um, late 19th century archaeological practice, um, she was at the very least one of the earliest female directors of an excavation in the world. Um, I'm, I can't find any female excavation director earlier than her, but I don't like to say she was the earliest in the world in case there is one out there um, okay. and somebody who is writing their PhD on some other <laughs> pioneering woman archaeologist says that Ken Dark he doesn't know what he's talking about. My my nun was was earlier than his nun. To your to your knowledge. Yeah, but to exactly. my knowledge, she is yeah. the earliest. And um she was um a remarkable woman obviously. Um and even into recorded memory of the workmen, the last of the workmen, um, remembered her, um, when he was an old man, remembered her standing, directing the excavations with, he said, her little notebook in hand. <laughs> um, like a modern excavation director, really. Uh, but we don't use notebooks anymore. Anyway, um, so, um, you know, this was a this was a good excavation. And... In many ways, Giraud's excavation, although not published in any detail, um, a story which reflects very badly on um, 19th century um, journals, the 19th century archaeological practice in um, what's now Israel, but, but... we're not here to talk about that also, um, that um, Giraud's excavation was really, for its time, you know, compared to contemporary excavations of its time, a better excavation, far better than Bugatti's 
in the 1960s. But they, but they found a house, are you saying? Yeah. So, so what they found was an amazing sequence going from the first century through to the Crusader period. And the Crusader period stuff is itself interesting. We won't talk about that today. Um, it involves, however, a Byzantine church, which is bigger and probably originally was at least as elaborate as the Church of the Annunciation. Mm. It's, and you, you, on just simple archaeological grounds, without any texts, um, I would automatically think... What on earth is this? You can tell my London accent coming in. Um, <laughs> what on earth is this um, church doing, which is contemporary with the Church of the Annunciation, the one of the holiest places in Byzantine Christianity in the world, but massively bigger next to it? Yeah. You know, it's got to be important just on simple archaeological reasoning. In Byzantine church architecture, how big stuff is and how elaborately decorated it is indicates status, okay. yep. indicates religious status, status within the Orthodox church. So what what was that? The... Uh, Sisters of Nazareth was considered by the Byzantines in probably the 5th century when they built these two churches to be apparently more important than the place of the Annunciation. Hmm. I mean, that sounds, that's, you know, that's uh, big time importance in Byzantine terms. Sure. Um, so um, that's that's the Byzantine thing, and um, that I think that's got to be the cathedral of Byzantine Nazareth, okay. um, yeah. and not least because a subsidiary building itself, something like eighty meters long, um, was um, probably a baptistry and. Baptistries tend to be found at cathedrals in the Byzantine Empire, um, um, and that was that was immediately adjacent to, to this church. But so because because we know that there was a Byzantine bishop. Yes. Nazareth. Oh, yeah. We don't, yeah. We, don't, we don't get a lot of references to. We to get one reference to it. Right. Um, Not much. In in the fifth century, in the late fifth century, four sixty, I think, um, yeah. we have a reference to a bishop. In Nazareth, we don't have any other reference to a bishop or to his church in Nazareth in the Byzantine period. Now, this is a deeply Christian state in which the Orthodox Church, highly literate, loads of people writing loads of stuff. They don't mention <laughs> that bishop and that church. Now, it goes to show that we know that's there. We, we have no reason to doubt that's continually there, but we have through the Byzantine period, but we have no 
written evidence beyond the forty. Just shows how fragmentary. Yeah, exactly. Shows how that you know the old saying: um, a lack of evidence isn't um, you know absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. That's the same. Um, So it goes to show that that really, really isn't the case um, when it comes to textual attestations of anything. uh, certainly anything in Nazareth. Anyway, the um, the Byzantine church had a crypt, and in this crypt there was a very well-preserved cave church. Well, we know the cave churches um, were built by the Byzantines, and this one has a lot of associated Byzantine material, but the earliest objects that can be associated with it are almost certainly a group of 4th century coins. Well, one's 3rd century, but it could have been in use in the 4th century. Anyway, this probably was a cave church of the 4th century onward, which had been incorporated in a 5th century massive church, I think, cathedral complex as an underground church, um, a church which nevertheless was as um, elaborately decorated as the surface level church (coughs) with wall mosaics, quite possibly floor mosaics, though we didn't actually find any, but it had been flooded. And um, what some people don't realise is if you get a, a, a flooded floor that has had a mosaic, the mosaic lifts from from its bedding and you don't yeah. get a mosaic anymore. Yeah. But, we, but there were loads of mosaic tessery, little stone cubes found, including some... Um, that look a lot like floor mosaic um, because essentially it's a slightly more complex argument than I'm um, I'm presenting it, but they're bigger than wall mosaic tessel. So, you know, you can tell the difference. this This is something that you could prove on many, many sides. So anyway... That cave church um, had been cut through and cut out from, dug out from, an earlier Jewish tomb, a rock-cut tomb. One of those types of rock-cut tomb, I was saying, tend not to be before the middle of the first century, but they can be first century or later. Sure. Uh, that are found in Nazareth. That tomb um, had burial slots in its wall. Those slots, even the one um, that would have been cut away as they dug out from the tomb, had been preserved inside the cave church. And at least two of them had been decorated with mosaic surrounds. Um, so they've been not just conserved within this Christian context, although they were probably Jewish tombs of an earlier date, but they'd been 
afforded some sort of significance. This is just this is just normal archaeological interpretation. We would have this kind of logic of interpretation, whether you were in Roman Britain or Roman Africa, or in this case, Roman, what's now modern Israel. Anyway, so um, these tombs had been preserved unopened because the skeletons were found by the nuns still in them. In fact, um, some of the skeletons were found. I may drink my tea now. I'm getting a bit hoarse. It's, <laughs> believe it or not, it's extremely hot here in London. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm sitting in my conservatory. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, um, the tombs were preserved and, and, and found within them were... Um, Unguentaria or um, perfume jars, glass perfume jars, a distinctive form, and those are probably among the Unguentaria preserved in the Sisters of Nazareth Museum. But the Kurdans had a museum built to preserve their finds. It's still there. And those jars um, can be dated by modern archaeology, to the first century. So this is probably a first century Jewish tomb that has been cut through to make a fourth century Christian cave church before the Byzantine church. But on the other side of the site, still in the Byzantine cellar, there was another tomb but much better preserved, also decorated in the Byzantine period with mosaic on the outside. But in this case, the the tomb itself of a distinctively um, datable form is so well preserved we can compare lots of its features with those of well-dated tombs elsewhere. Now, I don't mean just well-dated tombs down in Judea, um, though that's where the majority of well-dated tombs are, but well-dated tombs in Galilee, including around Nazareth, where they've been excavated mostly by the Israel Antiquities Authority. So um, those well-dated tombs enable one to say that that... um, that extremely well-preserved tomb is unlikely to have been built after AD 100. This is very significant because not only is that um, quite early for one of these tombs, but not by any means the start of the tomb-building sequence in Galilee, but it itself, again, like we saw at the Church of the Annunciation, it cuts through quarrying in this case. And this quarrying is small-scale quarrying, but it cuts through a partly rock-cut building associated with domestic pottery, in the floor of which was a pottery shirt which 
um, would not have been produced by standard archaeological um, dating of that type of pottery um, wouldn't have been produced before the turn of the era. So if you've got a tomb that is extremely unlikely to be post-100, cutting through quarrying, cutting through a building which has evidently been used because it's got lots of domestic material broadly associated with it that couldn't have been built earlier than the first century, that's a first century building. Sure. And, and, um, and so you've got a sequence which is... So you've got a sequence which is 5th century, underneath that a 4th century um, cave church, in that uh, tombs, one of which is definitely 1st century. And one maybe. Well, okay. And, and at least one find that seems to be back even further. Yeah, is that well, the sequence? So the sequence makes that building, okay. the start of the sequence, first century and well into the first century because it's got two other uh, bits of first century activity on its site later than its disuse the quarrying and then the tomb gotcha okay now you may say but you can't put a house in conjunction with a tomb in a jewish context in the first century but no, the tomb wasn't there when the house was there. The tomb was later. Was later. Yeah, okay, gotcha. So so that argument just goes out of the window. So, <laughs> um, so we have a first century house. It's in many ways comparable to the first century house that Alexandra found just across the road. I was about to say, so we got two. <laughs> yeah, we've got two. Right, next to each other. It's it's beginning to get, you know you you can't help laughing when <laughs> when you hear people say, Oh, well, there's no there was no Nazareth in the early first century. Well, you know <laughs> what? You know, anyway, um so so then we've got this building is associated with every bit of first century domestic pottery we can locate from the nun's excavation at the Sisters of Nazareth. Mm, building. You know, I mean, I might be being rash here, but I yeah. think that's a domestic building. Anyway, um, so that's a house. So yep. two houses in central Nazareth, both sharing similarities. But but you will say, what about all the rock-cut elements of the house at the Sisters of Nazareth? There, It's very well preserved. There's a rock-cut doorway. There's rock-cut steps up to its, the top of its rock-cut wall. There's a part of a, a natural cave roof left to support what is evidently going to be the next floor or perhaps the roof over the rock cut room. Gotcha. What a why why is there so much rock cut stuff when you don't normally get that in um Jewish Roman period houses in Galilee? Well actually 
many Jewish Roman period houses in Galilee could include some rock-cut elements in their walls. Yeah. Um, even the IMC house has, as you can see on the site today, where it's displayed, rock-cut elements in the walls. Um, why it's so much of the Sisters of Nazareth is an obvious, pragmatic um, response to the fact that the Sisters of Nazareth house, unlike the IMC house, was cut into the, a hill slope, a, rock, a, a hill slope of rock, um, limestone, um, so that they had to cut back a terrace to make it flat. And when they were cutting that back, rather than build the back walls and one of the rooms, the easy thing to do was just to form them out of the rock. They did the same thing to a lesser extent on lots of other sites, including the IMC site. Sure. So it's just pragmatism. It's, you know, it's, there's no, no kind of ooh, um, special reason. There's <laughs> just some guy saying, do you know what? It's going to be easier to cut that out of that cliff than it is. It is. It is to, to build, build a wall. Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm not making all these um, these stones across here. I'm going to have to quarry them anyway to 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 build a wall there when I can just hack that bit of rock out. And um, you know, Bob's your uncle. And um, the I've got a I've got a house wall. Um, sure. So. You know, it's it's kind of obvious. Anyway, um, that's that's the unusual thing about the Sisters of Nazareth, but it can be explained absolutely well. I hate to use the word in this context, but rationally um, by someone by someone um, doing yeah, what's sense. the least effort. And that and that is the Sisters of Nazareth House. But of course, people get excited about the Sisters of Nazareth House because um, of the possible, well, really pretty likely textual association between pilgrim accounts and the church, the fifth century church that was built on its side. Um, the 5th century church was built either at the same time or next to the Church of the Annunciation. As I say, it's a large, elaborately decorated Byzantine church. Now, there's a um, 7th century pilgrim account. There aren't many pilgrim accounts from Nazareth um, or, or relating to Nazareth. Fewer still, but give you any detail, but this one, De Locis Sanctis, dates from the late 7th century, and it describes two churches in Nazareth. One of those churches was the Church of the Annunciation, uh, which we know was on the present Church of the Annunciation site. We've got it archaeologically. That's settled. Sure. Now... The other church is described as near that. Um, right. It's described as having a spring 
from which water is um, drawn by a pulley? Well, there are two options for that at the Church of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Sisters of Nazareth. There is a natural spring at the Sisters of Nazareth. Believe it or not, the nuns didn't realise it until we found it in a Crusader tunnel. Um, <laughs> okay. And people had thought it was just another cistern, but it was another cistern which constantly f- was full of water. And when we, when we analysed that, it, it's a natural spring. Um, then um, that spring fed a lot of rock cuts and built even cisterns in the Byzantine and Crusader period. Bear in mind, the features visible at Christian churches in the late 7th century when Nazareth was um, under Arab rule but had only recently been under Byzantine rule will have been mostly Byzantine features. You know, there wouldn't have been any massive church building in Arab Nazareth in the 7th century. Anyway... The um, the other feature that could have been um, understood as a well is one of these cisterns in which there are um, fittings for, admittedly undated, for a, what looks like a pulley to draw water from a well. Okay. So um, you have a choice of it it being the well itself or being this system which had a possible pulley and which so much looks like a well that um, even the nuns refer to it as the well. Um, Anyway, um, the De Locis Sancti's church was near the Church of Renunciation. It had this well. It was a big and elaborate church, um, we're, we're told in De Loki Sanctis. Um, but it had a cellar, and it had a cellar in which there were two tombs, and between those tombs was a house. Obviously, one has to assume a house ruin, given that it was in the crypt of a church. Yes, okay. Um, so we've got these two tombs, the two Jewish tombs, which were, we know were visible in the Byzantine period because they were decorated with mosaic. And between them, exactly, well, exactly between them, is the first century house. <laughs> Just as um, described. So uh, that yeah. really seems to me that we have pretty much an exact fit. Okay. Um, and this is the thing that the media just love and people I get emails constantly about. The house is then described by De Locis Sanctis. The reason the church is there is the house, because that's the house that Jesus grew up in. So, Ken, you found the house of Jesus. Well, <laughs> um, and the building is now commonly known. I mean, I probably daily hear it referred to as the house of Jesus. Yeah. 
Um, but that is a modern name for it. <laughs> anyway, a name since my publications. Um, but anyway, um, and that's where I get into um, in my archaeological reports, both the um, academic book I wrote on the Sisters of Nazareth, um, which is the final report, as it were, of my work at the Sisters of Nazareth, my archaeological work, and um, the, my latest book, which it presents everything I've been talking about that we can uh, and more. Yes, that book, um, the archaeology of, well, archaeology, there's not a thing, uh, archaeology of Jesus's Nazareth, sure. um, which has just come out. And so that um, is where in, in those books I have to get into, though, though, you know, I wasn't in Nazareth to do this kind of thing. <laughs> I, I, I have to get into, could it really be the house of Jesus? Jesus. Well, um, the, the answer is that in a rigorous, rational, scientific way, you just can't tell. No. Um, it would. There's a, a perfectly good argument that it could all have been made up, that it could have been somebody saying, oh, well, look, that building over there, let's call it the house of Jesus. Um, the pilgrims all like that. Good, because um, we, know, we know that went on. We yeah, know that, yeah, 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 exactly. Well, where, it, where, 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 where did this happen? Oh, it happened over there. Yeah, yeah. yeah it could have been. Um, sure. But um, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> it's not as easy as that because no. there's a lot of evidence, um, both from historical and anthropological contexts, that the memory of the people associated with a particular house or a particular house ruin, funnily enough, especially, mm. can be preserved for an immense amount of time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, I mean, in the, in the street I live in London, there's a house um, that somebody... Um, who was one of Oswald Mosley's black shirts lived in, mm -hmm. in in the 1930s. It is even now called, to a younger generation than me, black shirts. Um, and, you know, that's almost 100 years on its own in a mm -hmm. modern city. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't use that as a real example in scholarly <laughs> terms, but I'm just chatting about this. But um, but there's a lot of anthropological evidence, again, cited in my books. I actually found quite a lot since then um, for that kind of um, transmission of the memory of who was associated with a particular property or a particular place over centuries accurately. Sure. So, and and, and I, I, remember, I remember the media reports, and in fact, they come up, they pop up every Easter. Oh, you know, yeah. The house of Jesus oh, has been oh, found. Oh, yeah. I'm really picking up, for God's sake. Yeah, but, well, I'm often, but, well, they often claim that I say, yeah, right, I've seen that. That is the, 
that is the house of Jesus. Well, I mean, in one, yeah, have you seen this one? There's one um, internet video. Um, I assume it's on YouTube. I haven't seen it for a long time. In which a guy pretending to be me, I suppose, <laughs> has quotations from a me- from other media, but oh. he's saying he is like so, and it, there'll be a, a caption that says, "I found the house of Jesus." And he'll, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, unless I've unless I've lost about 30 years and about two stone. Um, this guy is not me. Um, he actually looks a little bit like I looked in my 20s, but, but, he, but, he, but, but I wasn't doing that in my 20s. Anyway, um, so... Um, so, so we can't, we, we can't, what, what we can I'm a complete skeptic. So, yeah. what, I, what I would say is, we can't rule out the idea that there was some memory of, of that, that was, that was the house. But there's no way we could possibly go beyond saying it's a, it's a maybe, you know, it's that, a maybe. That is, that That's is, about that as much as we can say. Yeah, that is my position. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, in print several times as saying it's impossible to tell. That is my standard line. There's, the quote, there's the quote, folks. Ken yeah, Dark, exactly. but it's yeah. impossible to tell. And sure. But it is impossible to tell. It's not, definitely not. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, um, if you're going to be a scientific refutationist, um, you can say, um, well, we can't refute it. Gotcha. So it could be true. Could be. Um, Ken, Ken, I'm just, I'm just a little aware of time, and and I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of concerned that we won't get to the the bit that I really want to get to, which is the the skeptics. So. Uh, just before we do, is there anything else you want to maybe talk about in relation absolutely, to that? Absolutely, absolutely okay. not. I thought that was a good good line to leave it on, actually. But anyway, um, I, I will I will um, talk a little bit about skeptics. But I mean, I thought we'd pretty much any skeptical opinion. I was going to say, I think we've kind of made it pretty clear that according to your research. That of of uh, of, of Alexandra, uh, that of you know Rapano. There's there's a whole range of archaeologists who have worked on the site. There is no archaeologist, to my knowledge, that says that Nazareth didn't exist in the early first century. No, none I've ever spoken to all of Okay, um, but particularly, you can say absolutely no archaeologist who's ever worked on the site. On, yeah. Na- on Nazareth, even yeah. if they haven't done field work there, they all think that early first century Nazareth existed. But of course, this is this is just a kind of non-question, really. <laughs> Nazareth, um, you know, you're talking about did a Galilean village exist in the first century when you've got masses of archaeological evidence that it did? Well, yeah, it did. If it wasn't Nazareth, we'd, we'd just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, that's a, another dot on the map. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, uh, so it's not it's not at all controversial. So so look, we've alluded to it. Let's let's get down to it. The reason I'm talking to you, <laughs> apart from the fact it's been a fascinating conversation, is that a gentleman by the name of Rene Salm, who is a oh, piano yes, I've heard of him. I've heard of him. <laughs> heard of him, yes. Who is a piano uh, teacher and piano tuner in Eugene, Oregon. Um, a remarkable chap by, by all accounts on the back of his book. Here it is, The Myth of Nazareth. Uh, he's a scholar of early Buddhism as well as Christianity. He's a published composer of classical piano music and a linguist who commands many ancient and modern languages ranging from Aramaic, Hebrew and Pali to German, French and Italian. In addition, he has a men- he's a mental health professional, a concert quality pianist. It goes on. He lives in Eugene, Oregon, without the need of a car or a television. Remarkable. Um, and, uh, and he's also written this book, which says that you and all the other archaeologists are wrong. He has no archaeological training. He has no degree. Uh, and he's been to Nazareth, I think, once as a tourist, I think is my yeah, understanding. Yeah, that is my understanding. My understanding yeah. is Sam has, um, or Sam or whatever he said, has been to Nazareth once as a tourist. Right. He, um, you know. He has not studied the but, real material. But, 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 Ken, he's written two books. There's the oh, I know. My book is in one of them. With all kinds of rubbish. Yeah, a alleged biography of me, which is inferred from the slightest <laughs> misguided hint. Um, uh, as he sees it, I mean, believe it or not, believe it or not he says something like, um, I never, I never... Reveal my religious views, though you oh. can tell because I use AD data. <laughs> what Roman archaeologist in Britain doesn't? And um, and um, I call St Mary's Well. So called Mary's Well, St Mary's Well. In some of my publications, they were the ones written partly for the convent. I mean, I'm not going to not call it St Mary's Well to a lo- to um, some nuns, am I? But yeah, that would just be rude. Um, he, he, well, he, he seems to have an amazing capacity, Renee Salm, for being able to discern lots and lots of things from very small pieces of evidence. So that's another example. Um, his second book is is entitled Nazareth Gate, mm. and and the subtitle is Quack Archaeology. Holy Hoaxes and the Invented Town of Jesus. Because what happened was he wrote the first book and then a whole lot more archaeology was done that basically showed that it was a settlement in the early first century. So then he had to write the second book to explain that that was all a conspiracy, that you and Alexandra and and, uh, and Mordecai Avium and all those other archaeologists, I think you're all in league with the archaeological... Um, uh, uh, the, the Israeli Archaeological um, well, Authority to to get tourists. I think that that's the yeah. That's uh, yeah the I, I, I understand that um, having read both of those books, I'm <laughs> reviewed. I've, I've got a published review of the first one. I actually was writing um, a review of the second one for a well-known archaeological journal when I wrote to the editor and said. This is just rubbish. Can I not write a review? This is just rubbish. The second one is bonkers. The first one is silly, but the second one is just absolutely bonkers. He said, um, 
yeah, um, I've just been reading it. Yeah, I understand what you mean. <laughs> um, um, don't write it. Um, and, um, yeah, so... Um, so, so, look, I think we've effectively already kind of debunked yeah, because I, you know, I, I, it, it's quite clear. There's a, couple of, there's a couple of details in it that I wouldn't mind just, just before we wrap up, yeah. I wouldn't mind talking about. Okay. One is he places an enormous amount of emphasis on uh, the work by Hans-Peter Kunen, oh, yes. um, the German archaeologist, yeah. who, who says that those rock-cut tombs that you were talking about, the Cockhim tombs, yeah. can only, in Galilee, can only date to the... To the, to the late Roman period or at least to the second half of the first century AD. And so you can't claim that a site with those terms on it, I'm paraphrasing, uh, could, could be dated earlier. But you you kind of said, well, it doesn't matter because those yeah. terms do like date to later, I'm, I'm, but they can't pop up out of nowhere. Yeah, there has I, to be I, something I have, before I have, that. I have... Um not only corresponded with Hans Peter, but ah. um, I mean, uh, we are both Roman provincial archaeologists in background. I mean, he works right. on Austria. I mean, um, Psalm makes this thing about how he, um, Kunin and uh, um, a specialist on, um, you know, the archaeology of the Holy Land or whatever, um, whereas I'm not. We actually have a very, very similar background. <laughs> um, but um, we both work on the Western provinces. We both work on the Eastern provinces. I think he wrote his PhD, to be fair, on um, the Eastern provinces, whereas I wrote my PhD mostly on the Western provinces. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's just an aspect of our work. But we both work on it. Both of those, as do most um, academic Romanists in my experience. But, but, I mean, Sal not only leans a lot on, on some of the stuff that, that Kunin says, he's actually corresponded with Kunin, and, and he gives the impression that Kunin agrees with him, though if you actually read the correspondence, Kunin never actually says that. So Kunin doesn't agree with Sal that there was no I Nazareth. No, I mean, ask, ask, ask Kunin, but um, um, I'm not going to say, say an opinion of somebody else. I mean, I agree with Kunin on the, uh, on the dating of the tombs. Just, um, it's one thing to uh, um, date the tombs um, to mid-first century to... Um, to, um, uh, later in the Roman period, um, as a group of monuments, hmm. um, but any archaeologist will tell you there's typological development in any sequence that long. Um, type typology that is really what it sounds as if it says the study of the development of form. Hmm. A, a first century tomb is not going to be the same as a late Roman tomb, and I can tell you that the Sisters of Nazareth tombs don't have a late Roman on Byzantine form, having published immense amounts on that period and studied it for um, a very long time. Anyway. But, but even if they're late first century, I think the point yeah, is they but, don't pop up out of nowhere. You don't yeah. go out in the middle of, of, the, the, of, of nowhere and start building Absolutely. rock Absolutely. They're associated so with it the has to be associated with an earlier settlement. Yeah, but also, but also it's kind of irrelevant because 
the, the evidence for first century, early first century Nazareth isn't the tombs. That's right. It's, 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 it's <laughs> a complete red herring. And, yeah. you know, um, I, I mean, how um, Psalm can get to a reinterpretation of um, the IMC site, Alexandra's site, as he does, mm. there is no way. No way that site is just a series of agricultural features. I mean, just, it's just absurd. And, um, yeah. and he says of the Sisters of Nazareth, well, I, I, the, I've written a bit about this in my academic book on the Sisters of Nazareth, and I think there's a bit about it, um, but mentioning no names, in um, Archaeology of Jesus is Nazareth, because I don't, don't want to just... <laughs> focus on one guy, um, especially one guy who isn't actually an archaeologist. But um, the interpretation he suggested um, in his Nazareth Gate book that the Sisters of Nazareth, which incidentally he's never been to, um, it was um, an agricultural cistern or wine press. Oh, it's a wine press, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's ignores <laughs> the fact that because the structure was built out of a cave, a natural cave in part, it's got a, um, how can I put it, a very large hole in the side of one of the walls. Right. Uh, You know, as I say in in the Sisters of Nazareth um, um, book, um, as as we say colloquially, it doesn't hold water. <laughs> Fair enough. There's a couple of other things that he says which I find are highly amusing. I mean, he, he poured scorn on the idea that any uh, early Roman era coins could have been found by Alexandra. Um, and then she published uh, her finds and and they were. So he then demanded that the Israel Archaeological uh, um, Authority send him photos of all those coins and they just went... We haven't got photos. So he got them to take photos for him. And then he looked at those photos and decided they couldn't possibly be early Roman hero coins because the the coin expert who had actually handled the coins and, and seen them and, and held them in their hand, they were wrong. But the, the piano tuner in Eugene, Oregon, who looked at three photos, um, could, could determine the, the reality. you really got to wonder at the arrogance of this guy. I mean, it's just hilarious. Well, um, as they say in a, a very well-known British TV um, drama series, you may say that, but I couldn't possibly <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. Okay, I, I can say that. Um, look, we're going to have to wrap it up, I think, Kevin. Look, this has really been really, really interesting. I wish I had been able to, to finish reading the book. I had to kind of skim read it this afternoon. Uh, I did read several chapters in, in great detail, but I'm going to enjoy going back and reading the whole thing. Uh, I will put a link uh, in the description to this video because – I really do recommend it. It's very readable, Ken. I've, I've read your archaeological reports, and, mate, they're archaeological reports. So obviously, they're going to be funny. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this is actually quite funny. I mean, they're not going to be chatty, are they? <laughs> but this is, this is quite chatty, and you've got photos of the nuns, and, the, and there's all sorts of quite interesting little anecdotes. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. 
So, Ken, uh, Professor Ken Dark, um, it's been wonderful. Thank you very, very much for coming on uh, History for Atheists. And, uh, and I've had a lot of fun. Uh, you've been very diplomatic. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not always a diplomat. So thank you for being such a, a gentleman and giving us such detail and a real insight into the way in which an archaeologist works. So, Ken Dark, thank you for coming on History for Atheists. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. Goodbye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Professor Ken Dark and his kindly but comprehensive debunking of the silly Nazareth didn't exist thesis. I'll put details of his new book and his academic publications on Nazareth and a link to the History for Atheists article on Nazareth and its relevance to the claims of Jesus' mythicism in the description of this episode. We'll see you again here soon. This has been another History for Atheists podcast. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe today. You can also subscribe to the History for Atheists YouTube channel for video versions of this and other shows. Or to the original History for Atheists blog for an even more extensive collection of detailed articles on how to avoid errors about religious history. Have a great day.